opportunity to come and preach. Uh, while you're getting your Bible organized and turning to Revelation chapter 4 this morning, there is a handout, um, a little half-sheet handout. If you didn't get one of those, I'm not sure who has them. Um, does anybody need one? You got those? Brother Finley has those? Okay. Um, that handout is not so much, I'll refer to it later as well, that handout's not so much for you to take notes on. Um, you, can, you can do that. The handout is basically because the passage we're going to look at this morning is very, has a lot of detail in it, um, not hard detail, it's a description of God's throne in heaven, as I'll introduce in a moment, um, but you can get lost in a lot of detail. Uh, you know, you kind of go out in the bush and you get in the bush and you think, wow, where in the world are we, <laughs> you know? But if you can get back up on the hill and look down, you can see. So that's basically just for a piece of information, so you can kind of follow, keep track of the detail, and uh, don't actually get lost there. So I won't be referring to that. That is the outline I'll follow, so you can keep track of that. But uh, that handout may be of assistance to you. So Revelation chapter 4 this morning, and uh, <clears throat> after a word of prayer, I'm going to read the first 11 verses, and then we're going to work our way through those later. But as you note at the top of the handout, I want to entitle the message this morning, Heaven's Worship of the Creator. Heaven's Worship of the Creator. Let's pray this morning, commit our time of study to the Lord, and ask Him to bless um, our opportunity today. Let's pray. <clears throat> our gracious Heavenly Father, as we gather now with our Bibles open, we thank You for the opportunity of looking into Your Word and learning from it. But Lord, we begin with prayer because we are dependent upon You and upon Your Spirit to teach us and instruct us from it. And so we pray that as we look at it, that he would be able to minister your word to our hearts and help each one of us to make the applications that we need to. And quiet our hearts now, that we can focus upon your word. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. In the book of Revelation and chapter 4, let me begin reading with verse number 1. And I'm going to read somewhat devotionally so that we can follow what's here. And trust you'll be able to do that. We'll read the entire chapter. Revelation 4, verse 1. <clears throat> of course, the Lord has given John, the Apostle John, an opportunity to see things in heaven. And he writes, After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight, like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment. And they had on their head, heads crowns of gold, and out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, <clears throat> which are the seven spirits of God. 
and behold, or excuse me, and before the throne, there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion, and the second beast like a calf, and the third beast had a face as a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within. And they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, <clears throat> to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Many of us here this morning have no doubt heard the name A.W. Tozer, the saintly Christian and Missionary Alliance pastor of the last century. Tozer went to be with the Lord in 1963, but during his life he wrote over 50 books, and many of them are still in print and well worth reading. But one little devotional book that Tozer wrote was on the attributes of God, and it's entitled The Knowledge of the Holy. In the opening chapter of that book, Tozer wrote these words, appropriate for our conference. Quote, Without doubt, the mightiest thought the mind can entertain is the thought of God. And the weightiest word in any language is the word for God. And then he went on to state, a right conception of God is basic not only to systematic theology, but to practical Christian living as well. I believe there is scarcely an error in doctrine or a failure in applying Christian ethics that cannot be traced finally to imperfect and ignoble thoughts of God. The mightiest thought a man can entertain is the thought of God. And every error in doctrine and failure in Christian living is traceable to an imperfect thought about God. Those are thought-provoking comments, aren't they? And folks, if Tozer is right, if Tozer's right that the mightiest thought a man can have is a thought of God, and that errors and failures in doctrine in life are traceable to imperfect thoughts of God, if Tozer is right, then the truths involving the person and work of God are worthy of every person's, every Christian's consideration and ought to be the focal point of our interest in spiritual things. And so the theme that Pastor Davies has chosen for the conference is a great one. Great is the Lord. 
And Tozer was right, wasn't he? Because Acts 17 tells us that it is in God that we live and move and have our being. In other words, God is our environment. And the greatest thing we can do and the most blessed thing we can do for our Christian growth is to be clear in our thinking about God and our environment. So what do we know about God? Well, it's in the Bible, of course, that God has revealed himself to us. And as a result, it's there that we find and get great thoughts about God. And this morning, we have read of one of those places in the Bible where God gives us some personal insight into his person and his work. Here is a scene of God on his throne in heaven. Now, what are we to make of all of this detail and description? Well, let me point out, folks, that there are actually five previous occasions in human history when God has revealed himself on his throne and they're all in the Old Testament. I'm not thinking of Christ and the great white throne judgment. That's still in the future, and that's God the Son. I'm thinking of God the Father. There are five places. There are many places where the throne of God is referred to, but there are five places in the Old Testament where God gives a revelation of himself sitting on his throne. And in each one of those scenes, in each one of those occurrences, the five of those, God portrays something unique. Well, I shouldn't say unique. Other passages say it as well. But God portrays something about himself that is highly instructive for us. And so what I would like to do in the opportunities that I have pre to preach in this conference is use this passage and the five others. I have six opportunities. So I'm going to use this passage, and we're going to look at the five other Old Testament passages where God reveals himself on his throne and let the Lord minister to us Tozer's mighty thoughts about God. Not only to magnify our God and give us an awe of our God, but also, of course, eventually to help us avoid errors of doctrine and deviations in Christian living. I think Tozer really was right. Many of our difficulties in our Christian life go back to the fact that we don't have the kinds of thoughts about God that we should have. So we're going to begin here this morning. What does this scene teach us about God? Well, you notice on your handout that I have an outline, but basically what I'm going to do is we're just going to follow John's description of what he sees here. And you do want to catch that up front, folks. This is a passage of description. It's not, it's not a highly doctrinal passage. It's not a passage where there's a lot of argumentation, a lot of interpretation, a lot of exhortation. It's a description of what the throne of God, well, maybe I should say a partial description of what the throne of God and the surroundings around God in heaven look like. Now, of course, those who have studied the book of Revelation know, and I'm not going this route, but you know that, of course, this is here to help vindicate God in his pouring out through his son judgment upon the earth. If he is, in verse 11, the creator, then he can do with the creation as he desires. So there is a reason why this chapter begins here before chapter 6 to 19 in the book of Revelation. We're not going that route, but I simply point that out to us this morning. But we're going to follow John's description 
And to guide us in that discovery and to look at his description of what is there in heaven, we're going to use three headings. Number one, the one being worshipped. Number two, the worshipers. And number three, the worship that is being offered. But, here's a critical point. For all of that to come together, those three things, you're going to have to this morning use your imagination. You know, God's given us an imagination. We're fearfully and wonderfully made, and part of that's our imagination. Now, we don't want to let our imagination get away from us. And a lot of people have done that and wrote a lot of books and made a lot of money on what they speculate. We're not looking for speculation, but God has given us imagination, and he wants, to en he wants us to engage that um, in order to um, help us in our Christian life to anticipate things in the future, to motivate us in our Christian living. So you'll need to engage your imagination, but if you will, your imagination and your heart will be blessed. This is an amazing scene to think of. Here's what this looks like in heaven. And maybe you've wondered, what does heaven look like? What does God's throne look like? What does God look like? We're not told everything. But there's enough here to give your imagination something to feed on and to motivate you during, obviously, the coming week. And, of course, that little handout's going to help us do that a little bit. So let's begin with that first point. Let's get some of Tozer's mighty thoughts about God. All right? Let's do that first. Let's look, first of all, at the one being worshipped, verses 2 and 3. And immediately I was in the throne, excuse me, and immediately I was in the spirit. And behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne, in sight like unto an emerald. Here is a brief glimpse of the one that is being worshipped in this passage. And actually, it's more than just a glimpse of God. It's actually, folks, a glimpse of the center of the universe. There is a throne in heaven, and there's an individual, a personage, sitting on that throne. And from other passages, we know that this personage rules the entire universe. This is the center of of it all. Now note what we're told. John, first of all, folks, describes the one sitting on the throne, but note the way he describes that personage. He doesn't describe him by using terms of form and feature. He describes him using colors. And of course, you can imagine John, a finite individual, trying to get a vision or, or trying to describe someone who's infinite. Of course, he wouldn't have seen God, and we'll talk about this tomorrow morning. He wouldn't have seen God in his full deity. No man can do that to live. But he was given a veiled kind of picture, but he sees it in the sense of colors, trying to describe what he sees in terms of what he knows and what he's experienced around him. In the first place, he was to look upon as a jasper stone. Now, jasper stone is sort of a rock crystal that generally is opaque, but it can appear in several different colors. However, 
In Revelation 21, 11, Jasper is mentioned with reference to the heavenly Jerusalem, and there it's said to be, quote, clear as crystal. So putting that description in here, we would envision a stone that was something like what we know to be a diamond, a clear crystal type of gem that has the ability to flash facets of the glory of God from his throne. Come back Tuesday night, you'll see the glory. But you've got a gem like that. And there's also this sardine stone, which everyone agrees is sort of fiery, deep red stone. Maybe something like a ruby, but not quite like that, a little bit more transparent. And this is how John describes the one sitting on the throne. Not a person that in himself is transparent, as when we see colors in space, but a personage that has substance, but with the sparkling radiance of a diamond, and yet within that there's this fiery radiant red. Now if you're having trouble picturing that, again, that's because of who the personage is and what John sees, and that no man can see that personage in his full glory and still live. But that is, folks, that's what the Holy Spirit says. So we can't imagine that a little bit. Now, what is the identity of this individual? Who is this? Well, when you compare what John sees here with chapter 5, verse 1 and following, this personage, of course, can't be God the Son. Because in chapter 5, the Son approaches this figure in Revelation 4 and receives from him a scroll. So this is not God the Son. And when compared with verse 5 in this passage, Revelation 4, 5, um, this cannot be the Holy Spirit. So this has to be God the Father. Now, note in verse 3, what John draws our attention to. He draws our attention to what I'm simply referring to as the realities connected with this throne, the things around the throne, the realities of it. And you'll note there are four things in particular that kind of stand out to John. The first thing is this rainbow. But folks, this rainbow that John sees, this bow, really a, a bow we should call it, just what it is here, is remarkable because when we think of a rainbow, we're thinking in terms of something that is multicolored. This bow in verse uh, 4, excuse me, verse 3 is not. It says at the end of the verse, it's in sight like an emerald, which is a brilliant, bright green stone. We think of rubies being red, a sapphire being blue. Here is a green. And this rainbow is this brilliant, bright green. Second thing John notes about this bow is that it is, he says here, it is round about the throne. Now, when we see a rainbow, it's always, almost always in an arc. Okay? It goes from one over to another. Hopefully there's a pot of gold at this end. Rarely is there. You know how that is. But it, it's in an arc. But if you could get up above the rainbow, like in an airplane or on a very high mountain, you would actually see that the rainbow is a series of concentric circles. In fact, just on the internet about two months ago, there was this, there was this magnificent picture of a guy who worked on a crane up in Russia. 
And uh, he was, this crane was way up on a building. It was really high, and it became misty and rainy. And this, now he can't, you know, the, the man's not so high up that he can get the whole bow, but he's videoing this thing, and, it, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a whole circle around his crane. I mean, way out around the city. But it's this, this so we think of an arc, but rainbows are actually, actually circles, concentric circles out there. And so when it says this bow is round about the throne, I'm not sure if that means it's hor you know, the throne is here and it's horizontal, or the throne is here and it's, you know, it's vertical. I have a tendency to think it's probably more like that because of the, 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 uh, the, uh, uh, the, the, the pavement under the, under the throne that we'll look at. Okay? But he sees this throne, and what's interesting about this throne, folks, what really strikes probably our mind, maybe not so much John's mind, but folks, what might strike our mind when we think of this is we think of a rainbow, and it's kind of reminiscent of the covenant that God made with Noah not to destroy man or beast with water again. And I don't want to go too far in that direction, but it's very interesting to think about that, that God uses as this covenant sign with Noah and with man this bow that is actually around his throne. Now, of course, Noah saw it as a rainbow because it was in, you know, the rain and mist, and so you've got, you know, the light shining through it, refracting off of it, and so you've got all those colors. But here is this bow round about the throne of God. Now, how's your imagination doing? Is it still working? Has it started working? I mean, picture this, folks. These, these are the inspired words of the Holy Spirit. I'm not making all that up. I'm just, I'm just telling you what the colors were and what John saw. The Holy Spirit put this in there. So what does he want us to think about when we read this? I mean, this morning, you know, Pastor Mitchell had us go to the Psalms, and, and so we saw words there, and in light of those words, we thought something about God. Well, here are words of the Holy Spirit. So here's the throne in heaven with this personage on it, this sparkling radiance with this deep fiery red to it. And around that throne as well is this, is this green bow, brilliant green bow that's there. But that's not all John saw. Note as well in verse number 5 that proceeding out of the throne, John saw, John saw lightnings and he heard thunderings and voices or sounds. As one of the resources I was looking at said, this is, quote, a throne that is electric and alive with the presence of God. I don't know that it's quite the same imagery, but you remember on Mount Sinai, when the glory of God descended on Mount Sinai back in Exodus 19:16. It says, and it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud so that the whole camp trembled. One of those, one of those terrible acts that Pastor Mitchell was referring to, those acts of God that bring about a kind of a, a holy, fearful reverence for God. Here's John seeing this lightning. Again, that picture, you know how lightning is. Lightning, 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 flashes. It's coming out of there, and this thundering and these sounds. And then in verse 5, John also sees, know what he says, and out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire. Can you picture that? Seven 
lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, these seven spirits of God are not seven distinct individual Holy Spirits. The Holy Spirit is God, and he's indivisible. There's one spirit. So some individuals take this as a reference maybe to the sevenfold character of the Spirit in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 2 and 3. That could be. But it is very probable that it's a reference to the one Spirit of God being manifested in seven different places or seven different localities there before the throne. We do know, as God, he's omnipresent. And of course, in Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, it seems to lend some support to this, that he is, you know, the possibility he's in different localities. But whatever, which, whichever that is, character or localities, here he's portrayed as these seven lamps of fire. Now, add, add that in your imagination to what you're seeing. And then finally, a fourth visible sight which John sees of the throne um, is in verse number 6, and before the throne of God there's a sea of glass, a sea of glass like unto crystal. Now, we know this is not a watery sea. In other words, you have a throne, and before the throne there is a, there, there's what John sees as a sea of glass. We know that's not a watery sea like we think of when we think of the ocean or a sea like that. We know that because Revelation 21 tells us there is no sea in heaven. And also because John says that this is a sea of glass like unto crystal. And what John sees is something that reminds him of a watery expanse, but made out of glittering crystals, and it's like pavement. And I say that because tomorrow morning we'll look at Exodus 24.10 and it describes it there as a pavement, kind of a, a flat expanse. So John sees this, and you can imagine if John has seen something like this, an expanse, and it's like crystal, you know, and at a, at a little bit of a distance it almost, I, I don't want to use the word mirage, you know, like on the road, but it kind of looks like a watery sea that's there, but it's a sea of glass, glittering crystal. And it stretches out before the throne. And folks, it is reflecting the sparkling, brilliant kaleidoscope of colors that are coming from the throne and the rainbow and the lightning and all of that flashing and the colors of the seven lamps burning. All of that is there, this lightning and the seven lamps and the colors and the rainbow, all shining and shimmering and reflecting off of this crystal-like surface before the throne. Folks, what a dazzling display of brilliant, fiery color. Reds and greens and whites and golds and yellows, and it's all radiating off this sea of glass. What an amazing image, that vision that John saw. What a display of God's glory and majesty. And folks, even in your mind's eye, I know it's somewhat hard to really picture all that. I do as well. But in your mind's eye, it's an, almost enough to take your breath away. No wonder John was struggling to describe all of this in words. How would you do that? No wonder he's using color. I mean, we can get a vision of color. You can take a CD and turn it upside down and get a vision of color. 
Picture that. Turn a CD upside down and picture that radiating. You know, that's a, that's a flat glittering expanse, uh, you know, a flat CD. Imagine all of this color that's there shining in heaven. Amazing. What an impression on the human mind. But that's not all that John sees. He also points out and describes those who are involved in the worship of God. And now we're really starting to move. I mean, all of this, all of this throne and colors, that sets the foundation and really gets John's attention and magnifies the glory and majesty of God. But now when he begins to describe the worshipers, now he's starting to move us toward the heart of the passage and the description that's here. Notice what John says. And there's actually two groups of worshipers that are here. The first one is in verse 4. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. And then in verse 6, at the end of verse 6, Around the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And folks, they are worshiping because it says in verse 9 that those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him. And in verse 10, the four and twenty elders fall down before him and worship him. So we've got a worship scene going on in heaven. Here's what that scene looked like. Okay? And, and we, can, you know, we can relate to that. There's a, there's a scarlet... Um, backdrop here and there are flowers that are here and there's carpet and there's flowers and and there's the pulpit and all of this is designed to highlight the fact that this is a pulpit and to magnify the Word of God as it's ministered not only to help people you know keep their mind eye so that you know we don't put cartoons and things up there but something relevant to what's going on and all of this is designed to highlight that right here this pulpit in the center this is where we're going to get God's word and to magnify that and we don't go overboard to make it kind of gaudy and 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 you know weird looking but it's here to magnify this so in heaven here's this color and all of this description to magnify this throne and who this is but we don't want to get lost in the flowers and the scarlet backdrop. You know, we don't want people to come to the church and think, whoa, man, I wish I had something like that in my house. <laughs> well, Mother's Day's coming up. We'll just get that from, for my wife. No, we don't want to get lost in the backdrop. But it is important. It magnifies what's taking place. And folks, what's taking place here is the worship. So look at the worshipers. First of all, in verse 4, we have 24 seats with 24 elders sitting on them. Now, let's get this straight. The word seats is the same word for thrones when it refers to God in verse 2, sitting on a throne. Same word. These aren't chairs. These are also thrones. So you have God's throne and then around God's throne are 24 other thrones with 24 elders each sitting on one of those thrones. Now, unlike God's throne, we're not told anything about these thrones. We don't, we don't know the color. 
you know, were they gold or ivory? We don't know. We're not told anything about the thrones. What we're drawn to here are what, what John is drawing our attention to, the Holy Spirit through John is drawing our attention to here, is, are, are these elders, the individuals. That's, that's what we're told all about in verse number 4. The 24 elders clothed in white raiment, crowns of gold on their head. That's what we're drawn to, not the throne themselves. So let's stop first and get the identity of these elders. Who are they? How would we identify them? Are they angels or are they men? Well, this term for elder occurs 66 times in the New Testament. Twelve of those are in Revelation. That leaves 54 in other places um, where this, this, this term is scattered throughout the New Testament. And folks, on every occasion, it's a term that is used of men. It's never used of angels that I'm aware of. It's always used of men. And then, folks, what is described about these elders are things that would be true of people and not angels. And I've given three on your handout there. Number one, they're sitting on thrones. Now, we know that believing people will rule and reign with Christ. 2 Timothy 2.12, Revelation 20, verse 4, and other passages. And then we also have right up above it in chapter 3. If you're in chapter 4, you can look right up above it in chapter 3, verse 21. And it says, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also am overcome and am set down with my Father in his throne. So people will sit on thrones. So that lends to the fact that these, are, these elders are people and not, and not angels. Verse 4 also says that these 24 elders will be clothed in white raiment. We know from Revelation 3.5 that overcomers will be clothed in white raiment. We also know from Revelation 19.8 that the wife of the bride will be clothed in clean white linen. And then in verse 4, there are the, on, on the heads of these individuals, there are crowns of gold. In chapter 3, verse 11, there is a warning given to believers at Philadelphia not to let any man take their crown. And of course, we know in the New Testament that it speaks of five crowns which the Christian can win. Now, putting all that together, when you add all of that up, the term elder is used of men in the New Testament. These individuals are sitting on thrones, wearing white raiment, having crowns of gold on their head. This all points to the fact that these are men, they're not angels. So, of course, that raises some more questions. Like, who might these men be? And why are there 24? Why not 12? Why not 500,000? <laughs> why are there 24? Two questions. Number one, folks, why are they called elders? Well, when we think of the word elders, and even in the New Testament, that term sometimes refers to age and sometimes to rank. Typically, the term elder in the New Testament is used of rank, generally of leaders in the synagogue or in the local church. It does sometimes refer to the age of people, 1 Timothy 5, 1. Sometimes it's used that, but generally refers to rank. So I'm going to take it in that regard, and these would be 24 human beings who are in an elevated position on those thrones around the throne of God. Now, why are there 24? I'm not here to speculate. 
<laughs> I'm only to tell you what the passage says. You know what it says? Doesn't say. Okay. <laughs> Why are there 24? I don't know. Now you may have a good reason, or maybe some of the brethren here can find some place in the Bible where it says why there's 24. But there's nothing here. But folks, every every com at least every commentator that I looked at, and I looked at quite a few of them, every commentator that takes the position that these are human beings also takes the position that these are 24, these 24 elders are representatives of all of the Lord's people. Now I'll give you some facts about that to help with that, but they all take it that way, and that's the way I would take it. In other words, for instance, it's not logical to think that only 24 of the Lord's people are in heaven having crowns and white raiment and sitting on thrones. And the reason for that is, is because the promise of those things, of, of those things, crowns and raiment and sitting on thrones, those are made to all overcomers. And if you look at those promises, it becomes apparent that all believers are overcomers, especially since some of those promises actually relate to eternal life itself. So therefore, I would think, and I, I'm putting think in there because the passage doesn't specifically say, but I'm taking the position that these 24 elders must represent all of the Lord's people. As for instance, chapter 5, verse 8 might refer to as well. It lends some support to that. So, again, folks, picture this in your mind. Use your imagination. Here is God's throne with all of this dazzling glory, this emerald rainbow, all of these colors. There's this sparkling form with brilliant, you know, that flashing sparkle with this deep, brilliant red. And now around the throne are 24 individuals sitting on thrones as well. And they have white raiment on, and there are crowns of gold on their head, and all of that color is sparkling off of that crystal pavement. Just It's all reflecting off of that. That's there. But those are not the only worshipers. And I'm coming to the worship in a minute. Those are not the only worshipers. There are then, in verses 6, 7, and 8, there are also these 24, what are referred to that? See that in verse 6? Okay. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal, and in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were 24 beasts, excuse me, not 24, let's get that right. There were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. John also sees 24 beasts are folks, I better get my numbers right, okay? Four beasts or four living creatures, four living beasts. Now, as John views those, and to describe them for us, I'm going I'm to kind of take what one of the resources I was looking at, the, the approach it take to help put all that detail in to get, to, together. What John sees about those is he sees some things, he describes some things that are similar about those creatures, and he describes some things that are a little bit different about those creatures. And putting them together, it gives us a kind of a composite picture of these worshipers that are there. And again, I would take these living beings, folks, if you go to chapter 5, they're referred to there, chapter 7, they're referred to there, and chapter 19, they're referred to there, and in those passages, it seems to be clear that they are angels. So if we stay with the same interpretation, I would take it that these are angels, these aren't individuals, these aren't people that are there. Kind of maybe, maybe an exalted order of angels they could be. 
I'm not sure about that, but it possibly that could be as well. But there are two ways that John says they are similar. First of all, notice in verse 6 and verse 8 that they are all full of eyes. See that? Verse 6. Um, verse 6, there were four beasts full of eyes. Now picture this, folks. The, picture this. These creatures are full of eyes before and behind. And then in verse 8 it says they were full of eyes within now, when we try to think of a creature that is full of eyes, that almost seems a little bit, it almost seems a little bit ugly to us because we're used to creatures only having two eyes. But folks, some creatures here on the earth have more than two eyes. Um, I'm not really into the study of creatures, so I'm taking, a, well, I did get on the internet and look at scallops. But spiders apparently have eight eyes. Maybe that's the reason it's hard to pin one down. <laughs> Have you ever tried to get some of those spiders? And, uh, man, you're just ready to pounce, and, and it, it's gone. And it sees you coming. Okay, it's watching for you. Scallops, they say scallops have over 100 eyes. I thought, uh, I, you know. So I, you know, Google scallops, how many eyes do scallops have? And up come these brilliant pictures of scallops. And those eyes are all around the edges of it. And they say that those eyes of the scallop aren't just receiving light, but they each of them do have a lens and a retina. In other words, they're really seen with those eyes. So it's not inconceivable that if God has made creatures here upon the earth that have more than two eyes, that there also could be creatures in heaven that are like that as well. You know, what's interesting is Ezekiel 10, 12 says of these that their whole body... Now picture this, their whole body, their backs and their hands and their wings, quote, were full of eyes. Their whole body, it says their backs, their hands, and their wings were full of eyes. So here are these creatures like that. But folks, they are creatures like that in a scene of worship. Do you know the kind, I mean, just imagine, can you imagine the kind of worship creatures like this could have that are fully aware of all the colors and little delicate intricacies of God's kingdom? We have to have light to see. Imagine, you know, maybe you've seen some of these BBC documentaries where they'll use a night vision camera out in Africa to film elephants or something. Imagine if you could see in the dark what you would learn about God. Do you know the kind of praise you could offer to God if you had this kind of vision and could see everything in, that, that God had really made? Imagine if you had eyes to see into the invisible world. Here are these creatures and they are alert, they're knowledgeable, they're aware of what is taking place around them, nothing escapes their notice, nothing pertaining to their duty escapes their scrutiny. On top of that, it says in verse 8 that they each possess six wings, excuse me, eight, yes, six wings. This may refer to mobility or swiftness, 
or like in Isaiah 6, remember they saw these creatures there? Or it may be that with two of these wings they covered their face, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they did fly. We're not told what the situation is here. But there are these similarities, folks. Imagine the worship you could offer to God if you had all of this visual capacity to see with so many eyes, all the delicate colors and details of everything that God had made, but then also with the mobility of these wings, and you have all of this agility and swiftness and mobility. Here are these creatures being able to see, but, and, and again, I'm just using my imagination. I don't want to get it out of proportion here, but here these creatures are able to see but with these wings, they can hover before the throne of God and they can move and they're up and down and they're back and forth. And, you know, we just like things to sit still so we can look at them. But these have wings. And if that refers to their mobility, they've got the eyes, these eyes that can see. But there's all of this movement around the throne of God. And folks, there is movement. I mean, the lightning's flashing. There's a lot more. You know, everybody's not just sitting around the throne of God. We're just, you know, staring around, you know. There's this lightning and this noise and this thunder and these colors and this sparkling and these beasts and they're moving and, and looking and seeing. and What a scene of worship that's here. Now, there are these differences. In verse number 7, their differences relate to their facial appearance. A lion, an ox, a man, an eagle. Notice, not as bodies, facial appearances. Now, the Bible doesn't reveal the significance of those faces, so I'm not going to try today either. Generally, the Bible does refer to the lion that often speaks of nobility, or the ox of strength, or man as a symbol of intelligence, or the eagle as swiftness and flight. Now, again, folks, those figures almost appear to be grotesque. I mean, here's a figure, you know, an angel, but it's got the you know, it looks like an angel, but it's got the face of an ox. That doesn't appear, you know, very beautiful. But folks, I want to remind us that whatever God has made is something of beauty. God is a God of symmetry and beauty and order. And if he has made it at the end of Genesis 1, he said, and it is very good. So with finite eyes, we look at this and we think, yeah, I just, you know. But if we had spiritual eyes, infinite eyes, which, of course, we'll never have infinite eyes, but if we had glorified eyes, here's beauty that the world has never known. Now, obviously, those faces probably are revelatory in nature of something. We're just not exactly sure what that is. But John sees that. And then note, in verse number 6, what he says, these four beasts full of eyes before and behind, but right before that he says they are round about the throne. These creatures are said to be in the midst of the throne and round about it. And if you combine those two little statements... The idea is that these beings are <clears throat> no doubt in an inner circle virtually within the throne itself. And from this wording, they are apparently the closest to the throne. Maybe some people think even at four different points around the throne. We're not sure. 
But here they are. There's the throne. You've got the four creatures. And then beyond that are the 24 thrones with the elders. Can you picture all of that in your mind? You can see this detail. That's the reason I gave you that little handout, to try to keep you, you know, your, our minds are finite. They need a little peg to hang their thoughts on. So can that, that handout, can, can you picture this in your mind? I mean, here's this, you know, this color and these creatures and all of that is there. Uh, all of this beauty, this symmetry, this emerald green rainbow, the lightning and thundering. In the midst of it, that sparkling figure with flashing, brilliant, radiant, gem-like red. Those lamps of fire, 24 elders with crowns of gold and white raiment. Here are these four living creatures hovering and whirling before the throne of the Lord. I don't want to get taken as a heretic here. I'll use this term. It's a term used in the Bible. David did some of this. We think of these creatures hovering and whirling. Maybe there is, could I say it? There is a holy dancing. I don't know that, I, I'm just trying to give us something to hang our thoughts on like John's trying to give it. Here are these creatures that are whirling and hovering with these wings like that. They're some type of mobility in which they're praising the Lord. Maybe much like David and the people did when they brought the temple or brought the ark into the temple. We don't know. But picture all that. And then you've got this sea of crystal, this sea of glass, and all of that's reflecting off of there. But what John draws our attention to now, folks, is really the focus of the passage, and that's the worship. Again, we don't want to get lost in everything, the whole scene. That's not the big issue. What's the big issue here, folks, is the worship. Verse 8, and the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, and they rest not, they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when, did you catch the word when? When those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne and liveth forever and ever, if I could insert the word, then the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him. There's kind of a coordination of the worship that's here, but the four living creatures offer worship to God, and when they do, then the elders also follow suit and offer that as well. Now again, let me point out, folks, that this is not praise to the Son. That praise is in chapter 5. You can read that, verse 8, verse 9, verse 10, following. This is praise that is given to God the Father, and there's a reason for it. There's a reason, and that's what this passage is about. There's a reason for this praise. In praise of the fortress. Verse 8 and verse 9, we read that. First of all, in verse 8, they cry out, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And their praise primarily revolves around three of God's attributes. Number one, his holiness. Of course, that matches up with Isaiah. Number two, the omnipotent power of God, Lord God Almighty. And number three, the eternality of God, which was and is and is to come. And notice, folks, that this is going on day and night, it says. 
They rest not day and night. This is ceaseless praise, unending. If you were in heaven, this is unending praise. I mean, it's one thing to see what's going on, but now your ears are engaged. You're not only seeing, but this is unending praise. I would take from the passage that right now while we're speaking, this is going on. Ceaseless praise. But folks, in addition to this praise, holiness and, and God's omnipotent power and his eternality, in addition to that praise, that praise is also punctuated with what is verse 9. When those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne. So you have these living beings praising God in verse 8, and then every once in a while that ceaseless praise is also punctuated with these additional statements of worship. And when that happens, the four and twenty elders in verse 10 also fell down to worship God. Verse 10 gives us a description of their activity that accompanies their praise. They fall down and they cast their crowns before the Lord. But notice in verse 11 their praise. And I draw attention to this because this is the last verse in the chapter and this is what the entire chapter has been funneling toward. All of this color, all of this activity, everything that's going on. John's not just trying to tell us about the flowers in the backdrop and the carpet on the floor. So we go away and say, I mean, I mean, there is something in that, folks. And when you see that, and you combine that with Revelation 21 and 22 about the streets of gold and the gates of pearl and the foundation and the walls, you know what? It really ought to make you yearn for heaven. I mean, you just get a, you just get a vision of that, and you think, you know, th that leaves the world for dead. And it really ought to make you yearn for heaven. But that's not really what we're involved in here. What John is focusing and funneling all of this to is in verse 11, thou. Who's the thou? That's God the Father. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Why is God worthy to receive glory and honor and power? Why? Well, what's the verse say? Everybody look. What's the verse say? Thou art worthy to receive glory and honor and power for, see that word for? Boy, don't miss that. Here's the reason why God is worthy to receive glory and honor and power. In this passage, for thou hast all things, and for thy pleasure, for thy will, they are and were created. In other words, folks, the worship offered to the Father is because he's the creator. That's what this throne, this, the, folks, this is Tozer's mighty thoughts about God in this passage. This is the thing that's really being uh, emphasized in this passage. And of course, as I say, if you're studying Revelation, you know why that is. Because the Father is worthy to deal with the world this way. And in chapter 5, the Son is worthy to receive the deal with this word way because he died for everyone. And so, yes, you can have all of those judgments in chapter 6 to 19 enacted this way because, well, just the Father who we're talking about, because he's the creator. And he can do with his creation as he desires. And John's been funneling all of this here is this majestic, glorious, great, 
creator on his throne. And this is what the passage is funneling us toward. The simple fact is, folks, that here is heaven's worship of the creator. God is worthy of worship because he is the creator. And that's the primary truth that is being brought out here. And everything else, all of this detail, these colors and the beasts and the elders and all of the lightning, this is all designed to highlight the fact that this individual is worthy of this worship. Roll out the red carpet for the queen. Bring the carriage with the white horses. Put the crown on her head. Why? They've never done that for me. Never done it for you. No. The only time I got anything like that was on my birthday, and my daughter put up happy birthday on the wall, you know? They don't do this kind of thing. Why all of this? Why all of these colors and all of this going on? Because he's worthy of this. And it highlights the fact that he is the creator. It all goes out because she's the queen, not because she's the, uh, you know, just lives in Buckingham Palace, but she's the queen. So she gets all, he gets all of this because he's the creator. It's what's being emphasized in this passage regarding God. Now, what's the significance of that for us today? What do you think is the significance of that? Obviously, here's a description of God's throne in heaven. It's not here just to satisfy our curiosity. Like the kids in our E-class up in, you know, Cardwell sometimes ask me, you know, what's, it, what's heaven look like? Have you ever been there? No? Well, they ask that, you know, because they got these stories going around, you know, people died and went to heaven, came back. They want to know if I did that. No, I never died. I've never gone, you know. I, I don't know. But this isn't here, folks, to satisfy our curiosity. It does give us a glimpse. You, did you use your imagination? It does give us a glimpse into what heaven is. And, and you ought to be thinking about that, folks, because someday you're going to be here. I mean, this is your future home. That's like the book we got over on the book table written by Oswald Sanders. He wrote that when he was in his 90s, and he thought, you know, it's probably in a couple of years I might go there. And uh, he says, I ought to be thinking about what my future home's like. So he wrote a book on heaven. I think what it was, it tells in the book preface in there, I think like eight months later he died and went there. Well, think about where you're going to be. You might be there soon. I don't know. So this does help us a little bit. I mean, you yearn for heaven. It, folks, if you focus on that, when you go to work on Monday, and it's a mundane, routine job that you've been doing for 25 years, this is really boring. Focus on heaven, and you're preparing for heaven. I mean, that's going to really brighten things up a little bit. But folks, that's not the reason this is here. What is the significance of this? Heaven's worship of the Creator. Well, I want you to think of a little statement that Christ made in what we call the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Now here is what's going on in heaven. Is that what's going on on the earth? We're to pray that. What's going on on the earth? 
How is man doing in praising the Creator? Well, you remember how the Bible opens. Genesis chapter 1, we not only have a record of God creating all things, but also of giving to man dominion over all things, over his creatures. The fish of the sea, the fowls of the air, the cattle of the field, over every creeping thing. And folks, it was God's intent that man would not only rule over those things for God's glory, but also that as man became familiar with God's creation, that he would bring praise and honor to the Lord. For thy pleasure they are and were created. And that as man finds out about those things, he thinks, wow, what a wonderful God. Maybe that's some of the reason all that details in chapter 4. When you read all that, you think, that is amazing. Just picture that. What a great God. Now, that was God's intent in Genesis 1, folks. So I want to ask you, how did man do? God put man over his creation to not only order it for him, but also as man learned about it, like the verse says, to subdue the earth. That word subdue doesn't mean just to try to pull the weeds out of the ground. That word subdue in Genesis, folks, is a word that means to bring things to its optimum level of performance. God told man have dominion over the sea and bring the world to its optimum level of performance. Why would God want it to do that? Well, I'm not very impressed with Toyota. If I buy a Toyota car and it jerks and jumps around, half the time it won't start and it won't work. But I am impressed when I buy a brand new Toyota car and it gets out there and the ride is smooth and the lights all work and the horn works and the player and the plushness and, and the sound and and I think, man, this is an incredible vehicle. This is, I wonder who designed this. This Toyota, wow. You know, you know, I'll get another one of these. And so here is God, and he's put all of these things there. And as we bring the world to its optimum level, the idea is that we would, that we would honor and glorify God. So how, is man, how, did man do, how did the antediluvian society do on praising God? Well, folks, what happened was in Genesis 6, it tells us that the wickedness of man was so great upon the earth and every imagination of his heart was only even continually that it repented God that he made it all. And so he wiped it out with a flood. And he started over in Genesis 9. Read it. He gave to Noah and his family the very same commandments he gave to Adam and Eve. He started all over again. So how did the next generation do with praising God? first group of people didn't do very well. I mean, there was more in the group, I know, you know, years, but the first bunch of people didn't do very well praising God, so God started over. So how did, how did they do? How did Noah do? He got himself drunk. And then you know how do they did the rest of that. Well, how has man been doing since God started over? I don't have to guess. I mean, I could sit here, and you and I could sit here, well, we're not doing very well. But I'd like for God to tell us how we're doing. You know how we're doing? You know what God says? Look at Romans 1. God tells us how man is doing, and it's not very good. Remember Romans 1? Look what God has here. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Romans 1, 18. For the wrath of God 
Now look at this, folks. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Notice this, who hold the truth. And you know what the word hold means. It means to suppress. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And folks, man has been suppressing the truth, so God's wrath is revealed against him. The heavens declare the glory of God, and man is suppressing the truth. And someone says, well, how has man been suppressing the truth? Well, notice what verses 19 and 20 say. Because, see the word because, word of explanation, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse. Now, I, I don't have time to explain all that. You've heard people do that. But here's man, and he looks at creation, and he has a knowledge that there is a God, and this God is a God of power. What has man done with that knowledge? Verse 21. Because, see the word because again? Further explanation. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and they changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like the corruptible man to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. You know what man has done? When God started over in Genesis 9, you know what man has done, folks? He has exchanged the glory of God for may images made like beasts and birds and creeping things, and then man has given his allegiance to those things. That's beyond comprehension. And the Apostle Paul puts it this way in verse 25, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Folks, verse 25, listen, verse 2025 describes all of human history. All of human history. That is a comment on the entire human race right up to the present and including our generation. From the ancient civilizations prior to Abraham and Noah until right into the present, man has worshipped God's creation rather than the creator himself. That's the way it's always been. So what has God thought of that? Created man, take dominion, bring glory to me. Didn't do very well. Flood came. God says, okay, fill the earth and uh, take dominion and bring glory to me. How's man been doing? Romans 1 says, we haven't been doing very well. So now what's God going to do? 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10 to 12 tells us that one day God is going to take all of this and he's going to burn it up. And there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. It's all going to dissolve. And folks, God will do that. You know why God will do that? Because Revelation 4 tells us that he made it all and it was all made for his pleasure or because of his will. He created and he owns it all and he can do with it what he wants. And if it's not going to bring glory to him that was made for his pleasure by his will, if it's not going to bring glory to him, then God will just dismiss it, dissolve it. 
But instead of worshiping God for that fact, man has exchanged that glory concerning God and worshiped the creation. In the meantime, in heaven, folks, while that's going on here on the earth, in the meantime in heaven, around this glorious and brilliant throne, with all of this dazzling light and colors, there are 24 elevated human figures displayed in attire given to them by God with those living creatures and all of these elders. and They're occupied with nothing but praising God for his attributes. On earth, Man worships the creation. In heaven, they worship the creature. So our Father, we pray that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And folks, that leaves every man in the present generation with a choice. That leaves every person here this morning with a choice. Will we worship the creation or the Creator. And remember, Revelation, folks, the Bible's here for our learning. Let's not confine that passage just to the unconverted and say, well, yeah, they're not worshiping God. How are we as Christians doing? I mean, Noah got drunk. How are we as Christians doing in worshiping the creature, the Creator? Folks, our best preparation for eternity is to do as someone said, to right now, quote, to get low before this throne and give all your praise to the one who made you and for whose pleasure you do exist. And you don't need to turn there, but you know what that means as a Christian? You know the reference. You know what that means as a Christian? It means this. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For. Remember that passage? For. Don't leave the word for. It's connecting this. For we are his workmanship created. The creature? Worshiping the creator? We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God has before ordained for them. That he has before ordained that we should walk in them. Folks, we were created. Not just as human beings, as believers, we were created in Christ Jesus. You know what that means for us? We're to worship the creation, the creator by walking in the good works which he has prepared for each one of us. And that passage, folks, is not just talking about vocation. You know, that I'm a carpenter, this guy's a preacher, they're a school teacher, they're a nurse. What that's talking about are things like this. Before ordained that we should walk in them, if you take that word walk and trace it through Ephesians, you come up with a lot of ways that Christians are to walk. 5-2, walk in love as Christ also hath loved us. How are you doing on your love for the brethren? How are you doing on your love for your husband or wife? We were created under these good works. We worship the Creator by fulfilling those. How are we doing? 
We walk in love. Down in verse number 16. It says, from whom the whole body fitly joined together, compacted. Well, verses actually begins back up in, in, in chapter 1, or excuse me, verse 1 of chapter 4. I therefore the prison Lord beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation where you called. And it goes on and describes this whole vocation. Prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers, but you know that we would get involved in the work of the Lord. Down in chapter 5, verse 2, chapter 5, verse 15. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, redeeming the time. Be not drunk. And then it goes on and describes all these things of the, you know, the spirit. Wives submit to husbands. Husbands love your wives. Children obey your parents. Employees serve your employer. Masters take care of your employees. Here are the good works that God has given to each one of us. And we, folks, we worship the creator by fulfilling the works that God has given us to do. Sure, it's easy to see the unsaved world out there. They're not worshiping the cre creator. They're worshiping the creation. But in, in dealing with them, we can completely dismiss what God says about us. We were created in Christ Jesus for these good works. And folks, we worship in heaven. They're worship. Listen, those, those angels, they were created to worship God. That's what they're doing today. All of those colors, folks, God created color. He created lightning. He created thunder. You know what the lightning and thunder are doing in heaven and the colors are doing in heaven? They're doing exactly what God created them to do. To look brilliant. To, oh, man, whoa, look at that. Wow, whoa, look at that lightning. Look at those angels hovering and moving. Everything in heaven, folks, is doing exactly what God created it to do. And down here on earth, we pray for that. And as you hear people say, folks, that begins with us. Doing what God created us to do. And so I read again, folks, what we need to do is get low before this throne and give all our praise to the one who made us and for whose pleasure we do exist. Or as it says in Philippians chapter 2, we need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling before God. Heaven worships the Creator. How are we doing? Let's walk in the good works God has given us to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come this morning, we thank you for the opportunity of looking into your word. Thank you, Lord, for what we've been able to see. We pray, Lord, that you administer to our hearts today. Lord, I'd probably none of us here this morning dismiss this. We all, Lord, want to worship you as you desire. Might the Holy Spirit give us the divine enablement, that energy, and the grace to live faithfully unto you and to worship you as our creator. And we pray this in your son's name.